Welcome to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufchuk, and today we're going to be talking about Kawasaki disease. Now, this is a two-part episode. So for the first episode, we're going to be really focusing on Kawasaki disease diagnosis. And for the second episode, we're going to be tackling more of the management aspect. For our second episode, I'm really excited because we have Dr. Patricia Lantis, who is a pediatric hospitalist, and she has lots of experience with Kawasaki disease. So it's going to be really great to have her input um, on kind of the intricacies of Kawasaki disease management. So a little bit about Kawasaki disease. Kawasaki disease is an acute vasculitis of childhood that affects medium-sized blood vessels. It's important to recognize because actually when you leave it untreated, 25% of kids who get Kawasaki disease will go on to develop coronary artery aneurysms. However, with treatment, this number drops to about 4%. So there's a huge benefit to managing this correctly and recognizing it early. Kawasaki disease is also the most common cause of acquired heart disease in pediatric populations in developed countries. So it's definitely something that we need to know about. The incidence in North America is about 25 cases per 100,000 kids under five years old. So we are not talking about otitis media here. We are not talking about uh, viral pneumonia. This is something that's a little bit more rare, but anything that can affect your heart in the long term is super important. Um, And for that reason, we really have to keep our ears up and make sure that we are looking for this diagnosis. Kawasaki disease, the incidence is actually higher in Asian populations, particularly Japanese and Taiwanese populations. And what's interesting about the population differences is when you look at Japanese and Taiwanese populations who no longer live in those home countries, let's say Japanese children who live in the United States, they still have an increased risk for Kawasaki disease. So that leads us to believe that there is a genetic predisposition associated with those cultures rather than something environmental about living in Japan or in that area of the world um, that would subsequently cause you to have a higher likelihood of developing Kawasaki disease. Overall, we think that Kawasaki disease is caused by both a genetic predisposition and an environmental trigger. The environmental trigger specifically is unknown, but there are a lot of different theories. Um, Many people think that this is kind of caused by a viral illness, but regardless, something triggers your immune system to kind of start attacking the medium-sized blood vessels in your body, and that leads to the signs and symptoms that we all know as Kawasaki disease. As far as clinical signs for Kawasaki disease, remember that we are looking for systemic signs of inflammation in all of the medium-sized arteries. So I have a mnemonic for Kawasaki disease that I find very helpful, uh, and that is F. Connor. So in my mind, I like to think about Connor the Kawasaki kid, and Connor, in this case, we are spelling C-O-N-E-R, so a five-letter word, for, and each one of them will represent one of the clinical features of Kawasaki disease. F. Connor, of course, the F refers to fever, um, which is something that we have to have to diagnose Kawasaki disease. 
Specifically, we're looking for five or more days of fever plus four of our Connor criteria. I'll also mention that one of the things I like about this mnemonic is that the Connor actually goes through the clinical criteria in a way similar to the way you would encounter those criteria on your physical exam. So if you examine a child head to toe, you can kind of tick off C-O-N-E-R in your head and um, kind of count those criteria as you go along. So quickly, we'll just run through what the Connor criteria are. Um, Of course, we already talked about F, which is fever. C is conjunctivitis. O is oral changes. N, lymph node or node. E is extremity changes. And R is rash. So if you think about examining a child head to toe, you would see the conjunctivitis first, the oral changes second, then you might move on to your neck exam and discover a lymph node. Then you would look at the arms and legs and see if there's puffiness or extremity changes. And then you would also notice a rash. So now let's look at these criteria a little bit closer. F, Connor, the Kawasaki kid, is our mnemonic. And so we will start with F. F stands for fever. Um, We always see fever in kids who have Kawasaki disease. Fever is a classic sign of inflammation, and Kawasaki disease is really a disease that's all about systemic inflammation. So we are looking for high fevers, usually 39 Celsius and above, and they occur daily for at least five days. Untreated, these fevers will persist for about one to three weeks and then kind of self-resolve. C stands for conjunctivitis. And this is an interesting conjunctivitis because it is a non-exudative conjunctival injection. It's going to be bilateral, and the really interesting part about it is that you often see limbic sparing. And what I mean by that is when you're examining this child's eyes, you'll notice that the whites of the eyes are red and kind of injected appearing. However, there's this thin circle of white that occurs just around the iris and we call that limbic sparing. And the reason that this happens is because Kawasaki disease is a a disease of inflammation, specifically of the medium-sized vessels, right? And those medium-sized vessels are all just under the surface of your conjunctiva, but they end right before the iris starts. So when it's just the blood vessels that are inflamed, you will see a little halo almost of white and clear um, conjunctiva right around the iris because there's just not as many blood vessels in that area. O stands for oral changes. You can have a couple of different oral changes with Kawasaki disease. Some of the more common ones are dry, cracked, peeling, and erythematous lips. They look really, really dry. Um, Sometimes we get moms who come in and say, I don't know what happened, but his lips are a little bit swollen, they're red, it looks like he's wearing lipstick. Another finding is strawberry tongue, and what we mean by strawberry tongue is the tongue is really, really cherry red, and there's a lot of prominent papilla on the tongue, so it gets that little bumpy appearance that you would expect to see if you were looking at a strawberry. We also see diffuse erythema of the mucosa, Um, particularly like the back of the throat can be quite red, but uh, in contrast to something else like a viral pharyngitis 
or um, another infection of the mouth, you're not going to see any exudates on the tonsils. You're just mostly going to notice that red appearance of the oral uh, mucosa. N stands for node, and this is the least common of the principal features that you're going to actually find on exam. And what's different about this is that it is a unilateral swelling, and in order to qualify for this criteria, you would need a lymph node that's over one and a half centimeters in diameter, and it's usually located in the anterior cervical triangle. So if you have a kid who comes in with shoddy cervical lymphadenopathy, which is like a dime a dozen for a, kids who have viral illnesses or really a number of things, um, that does not count. So the N would not qualify in that scenario. You really do need at least one node that is over one and a half centimeters. It's a pretty good sized node um, to qualify for that principal feature. E stands for extremity changes, um, the most common of which is erythema of the palms and soles. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting because if you pick up the hand or the foot of a child who has Kawasaki disease, and you kind of look at it from the side, oftentimes you can really tell that the bottom of the foot or the palm of the hand is quite red and the top is um, not as red. There's a little bit of a color difference there. A lot of times we also hear parents say, I don't know what is going on, but his hands and feet just look really puffy. And puffy hands and feet are definitely a, another feature of um, Kawasaki disease. Again, this is a vasculitis. And so you think about inflammation in the blood vessels. And um, anytime there's inflammation, you get a little bit of leakage in the blood vessels. So fluid is going to be out into the interstitial space. And that will cause the hands and feet to have more of an, a puffy appearance and those dilated blood vessels that are inflamed will, will cause the skin to appear more red. A later finding in the extremities is um, desquamation. So you'll see some peeling at the fingertips, some peeling maybe at the toes. I've also seen peeling, not necessarily at the extremities alone, but also involving areas like the genital area um, or the perianal area as well. R stands for rash. Kids with Kawasaki disease can have a whole host of different appearing rashes, um, but I would say the most common one really just looks like your classic viral exanthem. It's erythematous. It occurs over your trunk and maybe your upper extremities. Um, it's maculopapular, meaning if you close your eyes and you kind of run your hand across it, it is a little bit bumpy and you can kind of tell that there's a rash without using your eyes and just using your hand. But not always, you know, there's a whole host of different types of rashes kids can have. And um, really what we're looking for is rash period. So there's no classic Kawasaki rash. Usually our rash will occur within five days of fever onset. So this is a pretty typical and classic finding that you may see towards the beginning of this disease. If you're examining this child and let's say they're later on in their course, they came to the ER and they're on day eight of fever or something like that, you really might have to ask the parent in your, in your HPI when you're getting more history, you know, did, did he ever have a rash? And, you know, sometimes it'll come and go. Um, and they may say, oh yeah, yeah, like three days ago he had a rash or something like that. 
So just something to kind of be aware of to make sure you're asking parents. Now, I also wanted to talk about atypical Kawasaki disease, which is also called incomplete Kawasaki disease, because this is very confusing. There are lab criteria involved, um, and it's it can get a little sticky. For that reason, I just wanted to kind of go through it and talk about who is at higher risk for atypical Kawasaki disease slash incomplete Kawasaki disease. Those two terms are interchangeable. Um, and how we would go about diagnosing those children. One thing that I did not know before I started researching this podcast episode that I thought was actually really interesting was that the highest risk group, or one of the higher risk groups, for um, late diagnosis Kawasaki disease are actually infants that are less than six months of age. And that is because they have a higher risk for developing coronary artery aneurysms and they also are higher risk for develop or pre- for presenting atypically. So they don't always have the classic features, the classic findings, um, and they just present a little bit more um, weirdly, for lack of a better word. And so we have to have that diagnosis kind of a little bit higher on our radar when we're looking at these kids who are less than six months of age and coming in with fever of unknown origin or fever for five or six days, um, just like something to really keep, you know, in the back of your mind. So how do we work up kids for atypical Kawasaki disease and who do we include? So I think classically we would include kids who have five days of fever, but don't quite meet the criteria for Kawasaki disease, meaning They only have two or three of the clinical symptoms. Let's say they've got five days of fever, they've got conjunctivitis with limbic sparing, they've got uh, one big lymph node, and that's it. So they really, that kid, that example, they would only meet the fever and then two out of the five and not four out of the five. So they would be an incomplete type of picture. And at that point, you would want to order some more labs and some more testing to kind of tease out, is this an atypical Kawasaki case? The other kids you want to include are infants less than six months of age who have had prolonged fever, let's say over seven days or so, um, without a clear cause. And again, that is because those kids are at higher risk for presenting atypically. So what labs are we going to order? We are going to get just kind of basic stuff. That includes a CBC, a CMP, a CRP, an ESR, and a urine. And one thing to know that's important about the urine is you do want a bagged urine, not a cath urine. And when we think back to the pathophysiology of Kawasaki disease, the reason behind that is because we are looking for evidence of inflammation. And one of those things that we're looking for is a sterile pyuria. So meaning we don't have a UTI, but in the urine we want to see if there's the presence of more white blood cells than normal. And that would tip us off that there is inflammation. Those white blood cells are not coming from the bladder. They're actually coming from the urethra. So we're assessing, in a, in, in a sense, for the presence of urethritis, which is a marker for, you know, this 
overarching picture of systemic inflammation. And in order to capture that, you can't bypass the urethra with a catheter and get urine out of the bladder. You really have to get urine from a bag sample. So if you're dealing with a smaller child and the nurse asks you, hey, do you want us to cat this kid? No, because we're not worried about a UTI. We want to see if there is sterile pyuria or not. So that's kind of a side note about the urine. But outside of that, basic labs, CBC, CMP, CRP, and ESR, and a urinalysis. And what are we looking for? Well, we're looking for signs of systemic inflammation, right? So starting with our inflammatory markers, Kawasaki disease is a disease of inflammation. So if you don't have inflammation, you don't have Kawasaki disease. And because of that, you need a CRP that's high or an ESR that's high. Typically, we'll see our CRP being over 3 mg per deciliter and ESR being over 40. And then usually there are other findings. Um, so we're looking for three additional lab findings in addition to having an elevated CRP or ESR, okay? And we'll run through what those lab findings are. On your CBC, you are looking for anemia, a leukocytosis with a white count of over 15,000, a thrombocytosis with a platelet count of over 450, and that is a late finding. So we will have that thrombocytosis probably after the seventh day of fever. So if you don't find it on your initial labs, it doesn't mean the kid doesn't have Kawasaki disease. It could just be slowly developing. And if you think about all of these lab findings on your CBC, anemia, leukocytosis, and thrombocytosis, they make sense, right? Like those are all things that we see in kids who have really bad systemic inflammation. On your CMP, you will see hypoalbuminemia. Usually your albumin level will be less than three. And the reason for that is because albumin is a inverse inflammatory marker, meaning when you have more inflammation, your albumin level will actually go down. So again, we're looking for inflammation. And then the other thing is an elevated ALT, which is also kind of assessing for inflammation. And then lastly, we talked about our urinalysis. We are looking for over 10 white blood cells per high power field without evidence of UTI, and we would call that sterile pyuria. Overall, in order to meet criteria for atypical Kawasaki disease, you would need five days of fever, less than four clinical criteria, because that's how you get to be incomplete at first, right? Then you move on to getting these labs, we first look at our CRP and our ESR, and we say, is there, is there evidence of systemic inflammation or not? Yes or no. If there is, then we would need three or more supplemental lab findings. And those include things like your anemia, leukocytosis, thrombocytosis, hypoalbuminemia, and elevated ALT and sterile pyuria. I know that's a lot to remember, um, but don't forget that we have all of this written down on the Quick Notes version for this episode, which is available um, at mdnotified.com. So if this is something that you don't think you can just magically memorize, which I certainly could not, um, go ahead and check that out. You can download it and keep it kind of in your back pocket for when you need it. The other thing I wanted to 
mention is um, when you're thinking about diagnosing a child with atypical Kawasaki disease versus classic Kawasaki disease, one of the things you need to ask yourself is, should I get an echocardiogram on this child? Remember, at the very beginning of this episode, we talked about how Kawasaki disease is the most common cause of acquired heart disease in children in developed countries. And the reason that we care about their heart and their echo is because we're looking for coronary artery dilation because your coronary arteries are medium-sized blood vessels. And obviously, they're very important ones. So we want to check them out and make sure that those are looking normal. So if you're ever asking yourself that question, the answer is yes. You do need to get an echocardiogram and just kind of see where you're at. One interesting thing um, about diagnosis for atypical Kawasaki disease, you can kind of diagnose it in two ways. One is you go through those lab criteria, which we just talked about. Or two, you have an echo that has findings suggestive of coronary artery disease. That would be stuff like coronary artery dilation or, God forbid, the presence of a coronary artery aneurysm. If you have those findings on your echocardiogram, you automatically can skip the lab findings and just go ahead and get a diagnosis of atypical Kawasaki disease. And that's because that's kind of a classic finding um, that we see in kids with Kawasaki disease. One last thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap up our episode is our differential for kids who come in looking like they may have Kawasaki disease. What else are we thinking about? And the big one that I wanted to talk about is adenovirus. Adenovirus can be very confusing because it causes high fevers, rash, it'll cause erythematous oropharynx and sore throat and conjunctivitis. So it oftentimes looks very similar to Kawasaki disease. And that's just something you kind of keep in the back of your mind. And you can ask yourself when you're working this child up, you know, am I sure this is Kawasaki disease or should we maybe get like a respiratory viral panel and see if they actually have adenovirus? Other less common mimickers of Kawasaki disease are things like acute unilateral lymphadenitis. So think about a child who has fever, they've got one giant swollen node. Um, A lot of times that node is swollen because they have a viral illness. Viral illnesses can give you rash. So you can kind of see how this picture quickly gets kind of muddled. Um, So that's another thing to keep on your differential. And then even less common is um, measles, which presents with rash, fever. That can get very confusing. And since we don't see measles, thank God, as much as we used to, um, it's not always something that we think about kind of as a diagnosis in the forefront of our minds. So those are just a couple of things to think about when um, you're working a child up who may or may not have Kawasaki disease. So that wraps up our first episode on Kawasaki disease diagnosis. Next week, we're going to be talking to Dr. Patricia Lantis, who is a pediatric hospitalist and will be walking us through Kawasaki disease treatment and management. So again, I'm Christine Sufchuk. This is MD Notified, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. 
References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.